Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 109, Ed Muzio Demystifies Culture. Here's a shout out to listeners in Auckland, New Zealand, Armenia, and in New Jersey, Madison, Montclair, and Edison. With that, let's get started. In episode 33, Ed and I talked about what he does to help organizations strengthen their culture and how he helps teams do the same. In this episode, Ed and I have a longer conversation about what culture is, how you can change it, and what people can do regardless of career level to influence culture. Ed is a management consultant who has written three books and his latest book, Iterate, has just been released as an audiobook. If you're in need of culture change, talk to Ed. Part 1. What is culture and why should I care? Culture is something that's easy to understand in a lot of ways, but difficult to explain. From a leadership perspective, culture is something you want to attend to. It can affect how well you achieve strategy and be able to influence and help those around you grow mentally and morally. To get the conversation started, I share a definition from Ken Blanchard and Gary Ridge's book, Helping People Win at Work. Here I am sharing that definition. I've often heard people talk about cultures being the way we do things around here. One of the clearest definitions or simplest definitions I've heard was from Blanchard, which is the assumptions, beliefs, values, customs, and behaviors of the organization's employees, supervisors, and leaders. In other words, culture is the way we do things around here. Yeah, I like that definition. You know, I'm a big fan of Blanchard. In fact, I was humbled when he endorsed my book, Iterate. And I think that's a great definition of kind of the outcome of culture, which is at the end of the day, culture is absolutely the way we do things around here. It's sort of so prevalent as to be everywhere. I think, though, that sometimes we have trouble with talking about changing it from that view because it's hard to sort of change the general way we do things around here. It's a little easier for me anyway to think about what it is from the perspective of what it's acting on. You have to kind of start in my mind with organizations are what they are, which is complex open systems, right? An ecosystem, a human brain, a community or a city. All of these are examples of complex open systems. You have a number of different independent units. You have external internal forces. You have changes at various levels on those forces. You have units moving between sections or making different links between sections. And that's what's going on in an organization. To me, you have to sort of ask the question, okay, so what does culture mean in that context? When I talk about the organization, I always use the metaphor, and I know I've done this with you last time we were together. I think about an individual taking a walk, kind of heading for your car across a crowded parking lot. And we could talk a lot about that. Yeah. You know, you've got your executive office setting a pace in a direction, that's your brain. You've got your workers, that's your feet kind of moving across the surface. You've got a lot going on between them. And you have some variation of either every step you take is the next best one toward your car, or you're following some plan that you laid out a few steps ago, regardless of what you've learned. And when you think about that metaphor and you think about, okay, here's this person walking to the car, where is the culture in that story? I've asked that in a number of online and live sessions, and you get a lot of interesting answers, kind of like the heart, the clothing, you know, the song they're whistling, like there's all these different (laughs) answers. I mean, there's not a wrong answer, but I really like the answer of culture is the habits. It's tempting to kind of say 
culture is the weather, right? It's it's acting on you and it's changing your process and it is acting on you and it is changing your process. But the problem with the weather is you can't do anything about the weather. Your habits act on you. They act on you in ways you're not aware of. They cause you to do things that are beneficial or not for your own goals in ways you're often not aware of, but also they're yours and you own them and they can be changed. Maybe in some cases they should be changed. Maybe in some cases they serve you well. In the individual, it's habits. So in the complex open system, it's habituated patterns of behavior, right? It's things we're doing because we're doing them and because we have momentum with them. What I like about the idea of habits and thinking about habits in connection with being in an organization that's complex and open system is that those habits affect different levels. So if you think about scale, it could be your own team that you're affecting by your habits. It could be your department. It could be your business unit. It could be the company as a whole. One person can have an effect on the multiple systems within an organization. Absolutely. And you're talking about a couple of different, I think, useful and important ideas there. One of them is, yeah, the individual, in this case, the person in the organization works within multiple subsections or subcomponents or in the systems level language subsystems. That person carries individual habits into those different contexts. And then those individual habits influence those contexts, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes greatly, sometimes not at all. Those individual habits come into the group habits. Edgar Schein from Sloan, who we think invented the term corporate culture, he had a definition I put up a lot when I'm talking about this. And it was culture is a pattern of shared basic assumptions that the group learned as it solved its problems and that has worked well enough to be considered valid and to be taught to new members as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. If you unpack that a little bit, it basically says we, the we in the organization now or the we that came before us had some troubles and some problems and challenges. And in the course of solving them, we discovered some things behaviorally that worked. And so now we've sort of accidentally installed those as habits and culture. And so we keep teaching those back and forth to each other because they worked. And so that's sort of a carry forward of things that have worked for us before. If you have someone new come into an organization, they may have an idea what the culture is like from interviews and talking with people before they start. When they come in, they bring with them their own habits, their own behaviors. A couple of things could happen. They could assimilate and learn from how other people model that particular culture or those habits. They could influence by what they bring into the organization. That could be good where their habits and behaviors complements and takes the company to the next level or takes that group to the next level, evolving the culture, so to speak, or it could devolve the culture. If you have someone, for example, an executive coming into an organization who is sociopathic, manipulative, when that person comes in and you have what I would call a healthy culture, they could actually damage the culture and influence people by modeling that type of behavior in a negative way. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I think is one of the largest benefits that comes out of the kind of work that I do in helping organizations move the needle on where their culture is, you know, it's funny because this isn't usually what I lead with if I'm talking to someone who's thinking about this the conversation is around what are good habits versus bad habits. Mm. Stick with that metaphor, right? So it's like, how can we get the culture moved more in a direction of being forward-looking and resource allocation-oriented as opposed to blaming, for example? But one of the really important benefits of the work is that we start to put a language and some definitions around how do we do things around here and how do we find it 
to do things a certain way so that we have some language to say, we believe this type of culture is valuable and we put energy into keeping it this way so that when someone comes in and tries to push us further in this direction, we accept that. And when someone comes in, like the example you gave, and tries to pull us away from this direction, we have language to say, oh no, sorry, we weren't clear about this. That's not how we do things around here. That's not how we make decisions. That's not how we deal with conflict in groups, for example. In doing that, a couple things happen in my experience. One is that the culture gets stronger by virtue of the people that are sort of making those claims that have that shared language. And the other is that people that are not in alignment with that culture often will self-select out, take it a slightly different direction. If we're doing culture work to move it toward what I would call a more iterative culture, better with group decisions, more collaborative, more interested in a variety of perspectives and making the hard decisions in full transparency versus in isolation. If there's somebody in that system who is just intent on operating not in that way, oftentimes they will self-select out because once it becomes clear that, hey, I can't do what I want around here, they don't want to be there anymore. And I try to really be clear that that is not, I don't have any automatic judgment on that. There are many ways to run a company and I don't get to tell people how to run their companies. It is good for them to be consistent. And so it is a benefit that if everybody chooses one way, the person who's intent on behaving a different way goes and finds a different place to behave that way. That's beneficial, I think, to that person as well as to the culture that they're leaving. I think a really good way of taking what you just said to really communicate what you're trying to say in a different way is think about process mapping. If you have processes in your organization and you don't map it, then to some extent, it's ad hoc. But once you start defining it, you start to shape it, mold it, build it. I think the same can be true about culture. Once you start talking about the language of your organization, the things that you do, once you make those more explicit rather than tacit or implicit, then people know where they stand and they know sort of like the standard that they should be working against. That's exactly right. And one of the sort of interesting side effects to that is that and I've seen this over and over again is, you know, if I come into an organization and the culture is, as you said, like not well-defined, right? The process isn't mapped. We don't even know what it is. Then there are complaints. There are always complaints in the organization, whatever. We don't make decisions clearly, or, you know, I feel like I was left out of things or were chaotic, whatever those are. The complaints themselves tend to be sort of chaotic. And then when we get the culture stood up, I think people tend to sort of think that, oh, the complaints will go away. They don't. And that's not a bad thing. The complaints turn into, hey, we say we're making good group decisions, but in this case, we didn't do that. Or, hey, we say we value reality and that we want to bring as much realistic data into our decisions as possible or into our conversations as possible. And I don't think we're doing that in this context. And I think from the inside, those complaints, as far as I can tell, feel and seem just as valid, just as important. And they are, and they seem just as worrisome. But me on the outside looking in, when I see the complaints go from the first state I mentioned to that state, I say to myself, we've done something good here because now instead of just sort of being vaguely unhappy with what's going on, we are holding ourselves accountable to a standard and hopefully a research-based and, and you know, useful standard to say, let's make sure we do better. And so the complaints don't go away, but that awareness of where we're deviating becomes more pronounced and more able to net a positive result. I think that's probably where there's a difference in process mapping because if you map a process and you're not following the process, then you stop and start following the process culture is a little more nebulous, that open system, right? So you're never exactly mm, yeah. following the ideal, but you've got that ideal held up and you keep aiming for it and getting closer to it. And that in itself produces better results. It's almost like an internal iteration of like, how do we make the next step toward being better at the culture we want? That's just key. 
it's like before you try to define and explain what your culture is, your complaints are ad hoc. Once you have something grounded, you can ground your complaints to the culture, to those habits. It becomes a little bit more logical and the employees can do a better job of clarifying what it is that they want to communicate that they're unhappy about or they think we can improve on. Exactly. And to circle back to your initial statement, those employees carry their own habits, their own behaviors into these different sub areas by structuring those complaints in such a way that, hey, we've all agreed to do this this way. And I don't think we're doing this here. That complaint has in it the inherent responsibility to act. The complaint of people are chaotic or my manager makes weird decisions. Those are complaints about another. And so they're inherently not actionable. Complaints about a cultural pattern we've all agreed to have some inherent action for the complainer in them. Now, will everyone immediately act on their complaints? No, people are people. But it starts to build a world where improvement is possible and improvement can be owned by everyone because culture is owned by everyone. There are mechanisms that push it down from the top and mechanisms that spread it out sort of organically from grassroots. At the end of the day, back to the definitions we're talking about, it's the way we all do things around here. So we all own a piece of it. And we would hate to see a situation where everyone thought somebody else had it. That's often what happens when it's not well-structured. Part two, a way to change culture. Anyone, regardless of role, can influence culture. The difficulty is, how do you go about doing that? It isn't easy, but Ed has a way of conceptualizing what you can do to affect culture. Here's Ed to explain. So once you've got your hands around kind of what culture is, then comes the question of, okay, how do I change it? How do we change it? What works? What doesn't work? And there's plenty of reason to kind of want to do that. I could make an argument that all organizational work, other than sort of highly technical training, but I'm talking about organizational work like DE&I, employee retention, better accountability, innovation and agility, all that kind of intention, I could make an argument, is culture work. If you look at how we're talking about culture, it's these collections, these habituated patterns of behavior. And when you look at topics like that, you're really dealing with the question of, are our habituated patterns of behavior in that area optimal or not optimal? And how can we make them better? The question becomes, how do you do that? My favorite way to think about culture, and this comes from, again, Shine, and actually it's, it's built on by Franz Trompenauer, who did some work on geographical and ethnic culture as well. This model, kind of putting those together, basically says, think of a person as an onion. In the center is assumptions, that is how things are. Wrapped around that is norms, that is kind of what's good and bad. Wrapped around that is values, like what's right and wrong. And wrapped around that are artifacts, which are things you can watch. If you take an example of, I'll pick on an organization that I love that I worked for for many years, Intel Corporation. In the years that I worked there and still... Intel has a very strong culture of effective meetings. One of the things that happened very early in Intel's history, long before I worked there, is that people figured out that when we get together and meet, we get more useful results if we have a plan for that meeting and an agenda, and we come in with intention and we are on the same page. Over time, that worked. And so if you kind of roamed around Intel when I was working there and today as well, there's this underlying assumptions that effective meetings are a solution to a problem we have. That leads to norms, which is what's good and what's bad it's better to have an agenda for your meeting, to have a plan for your meeting. That leads to values, what's right and what's wrong. If you work for Intel and you consistently put together meetings with no agenda and no structure, you will receive a corrective performance message because that's wrong. That leads to artifacts. 
which is if I stick my head in any meeting room that's going on, I will notice there's a written agenda for the meeting I'm looking at wherever I go in the company. So that's the sequence that makes culture turn into those habituated behaviors, assumptions from long ago to norms, to values, to artifacts. And so that's what it is. The trick is that's not how to change it. And there are, I think, a number of efforts out there around culture change that are trying to change culture by talking to you about your assumptions, often in PowerPoint. And that's not, unfortunately, that's not effective because you and I, we don't really know what our assumptions are. If you look at the organization as a system, same thing. We don't really know what they all are. If we do, we don't want to talk about them. If we do, we're not going to change them for someone else. Those are deeply buried, but we can work the other way. If I just give you or give me or give the system something that helps more. So let's imagine a different situation. Let's imagine a company where meetings are all unstructured. And I just go into some meetings and I hand the person running the meeting a template for an agenda. And I say, try this three times and see if it helps. Now I'm being oversimplistic here, but if the person tried it, it might help. If it helped, that's a new artifact, a new behavior that will feed the other way down the onion toward the center that helped. Therefore, it's right to do it again because it helped. That's a value. Therefore, it's good to keep doing it. That's a norm. I'm going to do it more. That's a norm. And that ultimately feeds into that assumption in the center, which is for the next generation, the next iteration of culture, now I've moved that idea about having an agenda into that center of the onion, into the assumptions. N number of months from now, maybe a year, I don't know, at some point in the future, we're going to have a situation where that assumption is built up the way that I described it for my former employer, Intel. That's going to feed back out into artifacts. And so the way to understand culture is assumptions to artifacts. The way to change culture is artifacts to assumptions. You're not changing today's culture. You're changing the next iteration of culture. That works. I got a great example that really highlights what you just said. The agenda is a perfect artifact. So this is a slightly different concept. Imagine yourself in part of an organization that is maybe manufacturing, where you really, as a company, want to have a culture of safety. You start with artifacts. I'm going to share an example which illustrates of this concept. In hotels, on the walls, up at high, they have these water sprinkler systems. There has been a tendency of people putting their jackets on hangers and hanging them on the sprinkler system, causing them to break damage or set off. What companies have done, they put a, a symbol of a coat hanger with a big red circle around it and a line through it. By doing that, they eliminated this problem of people hanging up coats and jackets on their sprinklers. What they did is they changed the environment. So people will start doing the right behaviors. When you introduce artifacts, like you're saying, into an environment, start in that direction. You're right. It can have this cascading effect. Then it becomes norms. Then it leads into assumptions within the culture. If you want an environment in which people are working at their best, then figuring out what are the artifacts, what are the things that I could bring into this culture that will set up that environment so people can work at their best. I love it, Gary. That's a great example for a couple of reasons. One is you are absolutely introducing something that is kind of a different behavior, which is don't hang your coat there. And often there's enough information in the combination of the sign and the sprinkler to sort of be a reminder to say, if you do, you'll flood your room. It works better for me not to flood my room. I don't need that place to hang my coat. I can find a different place to hang my coat. That works out pretty well. 
Also, and again, this is a fairly simple example, and it's a little bit of a loose example because overall attendees at a hotel are not necessarily a culture in the same way that we would talk about a, a corporate yeah. culture, but, but it still works. It's a great example because you could imagine a situation where, you know, let's say in my hotel, I put those signs up and it doesn't work. That doesn't mean that I was wrong to put the signs up. That doesn't mean that my guests are unintelligent or damaged in some way. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't try something else. One of the principles of changing complex open systems is to be flexible and patient in the ways in which you introduce new behaviors. If that sign didn't work, we might try a different sign that said flooding if you hang your coat here, or we might try some kind of a grate, or we might try something where at check-in someone said, let me just tell you something about your room. I don't know what we would try. And again, it's kind of a loose example, but my point is we could make that change, but we wouldn't be very successful if the first thing we tried, we gave up on. I say that because that's, I think, often an accidental assumption in culture work and organizations. It's like, we're going to do a thing and either it worked and we're done or it didn't work and we were wrong and often we give up. And really what we need to do is do a number of different things. So maybe we do a training and we don't quite get what we want. That doesn't mean the training was wrong. The training might've been part of the story. At the very least, it taught us something. And then we do you know, some discussions and staff meetings. For example, I, clients I work with, I go and do some briefings and staff meetings. And then I talk to the senior executives about it and, and maybe something goes in the company communication. We get clear on what the change we want to make is, and we stay very targeted on the outcome, but very flexible about the path. It's like that Seth Godin quote, which I love, and I won't get it right, but it's something like doing the same action over and over again is not persistence. That's just boring. Yeah. Having the same goal over and over <laughs> again is persistence. In culture change, we have the same goal, the same outcome over and over again, and we continue to tweak and adjust how we bring our suggestions to the system, as it were, to see what and how it gets taken up and if it's enough. There's a tendency to underwhelm with the artifacts, with the interventions overwhelming behaviors or problems. So maybe it's not just one thing, maybe to move the needle, you need to do four, five, six different things if you want to be able to address real change. Like you said, if one approach doesn't work, you keep going, figure out why it doesn't work, for example, and then try to improve on it, or you add some additional interventions, solutions, artifacts, that can add to it so that you're not trying to solve a complex situation with a simple solution. Exactly. And that's also where I think maybe the, the hotel uh, metaphor falls apart a little bit here, but the idea of what's in those interventions, you go back to what you said, which is the artifacts, which is artifacts and in culture, that's habits, so it's behaviors. So let's make sure if we're trying to, let's say, install an effective meetings culture, that our interventions are not a whole bunch of us telling people why it's important. Our intervention should be a whole bunch of experiences people have with effective meetings. One of my interventions might be work with the senior leader on his or her staff meeting and have it run the new way and also make it apparent and overt that, hey, we are in fact purposely running this meeting this way for a while to see how it goes. Look, it's working better. Another one might be, here's a job aid for people, go and fill it out, come back and let's look at it. Another one might be have a meeting together at this subordinate group try it this way. Now try it that way. What was different? What was better? What was worse? So it's all about habituating new behaviors, which is not that different again from individual habit changes. You don't necessarily start working out by reading a bunch of books about how good exercise is. You probably start working out by doing some very small workouts that aren't a lot of fun. And then you build on that habit. And that's the kind of change we're talking about here. We talk about habituated patterns of behavior across complex systems, which is culture change. 
when you start talking about culture change, sometimes you end up saying, well, this is the job of HR. They're the ones in charge of changing culture. Well, that's not true. When you start assigning people to own the culture, you start getting into some major problems when it really is everyone's responsibility, regardless of level, to improve the culture. It should not be left to a department or a particular group. Yeah. As soon as you give someone the job of culture, you've given them the job that I say is the job you should never take for yourself or give to anybody else. And that is the get them to, right? I'm going to get them to do this or that. Get them to is a yeah. recipe for disaster and culture change. The question is, what am I going to do? What am I going to show people? What am I going to demonstrate? What might they pick up? And if they don't, that's okay because there may be a reason they didn't. But getting them to whatever is not a path to success. And so, yeah, as soon as you assign, go take somebody in HR and say, your job is the culture. Now that person's job is to get everybody else to behave the right way. That's hard to do, especially internally. But if instead we say, look, we're going to practice with some stuff and how we will stick with meetings, how we run our meetings, how we make our decisions, how we link our teams together, you know, how we manage our frontline, whatever, whatever piece of it you're taking, we're going to try some stuff together. And it's not even like we're going to try some stuff together and then all agree to do it forever. It's like, we're going to try some stuff together and then talk for a minute about what was good and then try it some more. And that's that migration from artifacts to values to norms to assumptions that turns an activity into an assumption, which becomes the culture. You can't really give somebody that job. You can give somebody the job of paying attention to it. You can give somebody ownership of the manual once you have language around it for editorial purposes. And you can certainly give the executive team responsibility for paying attention to it sometimes. You can't give anybody responsibility for doing it because it's by definition, again, back to your first definition from Blanchard, it's what everyone's doing. So you can't tie that to one person or one section. Sticking to meetings, I like the idea one particular manager of people wants to improve meetings, has some success, try some things, they work together, they like it. Then that manager shares with other managers. Then the other managers share with other departments and it becomes this iterative growth that can happen organically. It doesn't have to be a top-down, it could be a bottom-up type of change. Exactly. By the way, it is often top-down, and yet it is always bottom-up. There is no situation I'm aware of, even if we start a session with the entire leadership structure of the company in the same room, which I've done, and even if the head of the entire organization opens that session by saying, as of today, the culture is going to be different, which has happened. The culture is not different as of today. Now, if you structure that intervention correctly, you may make a huge change in the culture in a very short time, but it didn't happen when the CEO said it. It happened when it got taken up, when the behaviors got taken up by the people in the room and the people that work for them and started to replicate them. We can optimize the design of the time in the room and who's there and what we do to make that happen, but we cannot create a top-down thing in the same sense that a top-down thing happens when the CEO says, we're now going to go into this market and the company goes into that market. It's not like that. It has to grow from within and we can help it, we help it a lot or a little, or we can hurt it if we do it wrong. It's not ever instantaneous and top-down. Part three, what can you do to influence culture? The question may still come up. What can I do to change culture? Regardless of role, level in the position, size of the organization, what are some things I can do? Ed shares some thoughts about this. Again, here's Ed. You know, Gary, it's a question I get a lot, and it's often framed like, what can I do? Only the I has sort of an emphasis on it, like little old me. What can I possibly do? You know, they're not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I think that, you know, the first answer I give is the one I already said, which is don't take the job of get them to, 
right? If someone comes to me and says, how do I get my senior leadership to, I go, stop, you don't. Probably not. I mean, maybe you could pitch them an idea and if they would listen to you, they could talk about it amongst themselves. Like the obvious approaches still work. But if someone's asking me that question, it's because the obvious approaches won't work and there are no secret approaches, right? I have no way of helping you change the mind of your CEO in a way that your CEO is unwilling to do. That doesn't happen. What I can talk about is behaviors. So what behaviors do you see in the world you're in that would need to be changed? Like right now, if we stick with meetings, all our meetings are totally chaotic and it'd be better if we had written agendas. Okay. And you run a division. Yes. Okay. So in your division, that's a thing we could do, right? So we tie it back to behavior and then it gets really simple in a sense. It's not simple to do, but it's really simple in a sense to think about what might work because it's just four things. And I have this in the book, Iterate. I'll tell you what they are now. It's ascensive, visible, duplicable, and feasible. So ascensive, which is a real word and kind of a strange word. It was the best one I could find means it makes things better. So I'm going to pick a behavior. My behavior has to make things better. If I implement agendas in such a way that my meetings get twice as long and more boring, that's not a sensitive, right? No one's going to want to do that. So that doesn't work. Yeah. But if I implement my agendas in such a way that, no, oh, the meeting got shorter and more efficient. Okay. That's a sensitive check. Visible is the second one. Can people see it? If I implement my agendas in my mind and I have this mental structure of the goal for the meeting, that might well help my meeting. But if nobody can see me doing it, then that can't get picked up by anybody else as a behavior. So it's not visible. So that's visible. They can see it. On the other hand, if I write my agenda down and I say, I've noticed that my meeting runs better when I have an agenda. So here's mine. That's it. You've made it visible. That's all you have to do. And then there it is. Third is duplicable. And that means it can be copied. So if the person that is running that meeting is running a meeting full of people who don't run their own meetings, then they might love the ascensive invisible agenda, but they have no place to do it. They can't be copied. They might sort of retain it for later, but that's not going to create a fast change to culture. On the other hand, if my meeting is a meeting of managers and they realize it helps in this meeting, it will possibly help in their meeting. That is duplicable. And that leads to the fourth one, which is feasible. So duplicable is can they copy it? Feasible is will they copy it? And that has sort of two related subparts. One is do they have the skills to do it? Meaning can they write their own agendas? Probably might help to give them a job aid. And second, will they get in trouble? So it's not really pertinent to agendas, but there are many behaviors where they don't have social permission. And maybe even it could happen with agendas. Maybe you know there's been a message from a previous leader that has said, we never have an agenda for a meeting. So they don't feel like they have social permission. And so if they don't have the skills or the social permission, then it's not feasible and they won't do it. And it doesn't happen even though it's the other things, right? Even though it makes things better, even though I can see it, even though I could copy it, it doesn't happen. I will tell you, just to wrap up this little example of agendas, that I have firsthand seen this happen in organizations, not with agendas, but with agenda templates of what's on the agenda, with certain formats for displaying data, with certain kind of structures of displaying little things like action items from a meeting where a senior team kind of just starts doing it and just starts doing it. A month, two months later, you parachute down two or three levels and those same exact templates are happening at those meetings down there. And nobody ever said, this is the standard. Nobody ever said, you have to. Nobody ever tried to get them to. It just worked. And so it just kind of moves its way down the organization. And you go, that looks familiar. And the person running that meeting goes, oh yeah, my boss used it. I liked it, so I copied it. And it's sort of boring and not, you know, like there's yeah. no excitement around it, but it just kind of moves through the culture and becomes the new thing. That's what we're looking for is as a manager, what can you do that might seed that? It also might not, and that's okay. You probably won't get any accolades because no one will notice it happened and that's okay. But how can you seed that thing you want? That's really the core question of what can a manager do now?
And now I'm going to tell you a thing which will make you understand why some of my clients call me the master of unsatisfying answers, because here's what will happen. <laughs> you'll find the thing, you'll do it. It'll be offensive, it'll be visible, it'll be duplicable, it'll be feasible. And one of two things will happen. One, the change will happen slowly enough that you may or may not notice it and nobody will thank you or realize you did it. That's the good outcome. Or two, nothing will happen and you'll have to try something else. And that's also a good outcome, but it doesn't feel like it. That's the reality of influencing complex systems is when you get it right, it kind of just moves through in a slow, non-crediting kind of way. And when you get it wrong, that's just information and you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else and you keep having the same goal with different tactics. You iterate. You iterate. My thanks to Ed Muzio. If you'd like to learn more about Ed, go to the show notes. And if you have a comment or question, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and you can leave a voicemail message for up to one minute. I'd like to thank those who contribute to this show. Your contributions make a difference because this is an all-volunteer service. Lastly, I'd like to thank you for listening. This is Gary DePaul. Until next time, lead on.